0: The, the age we live in, whether you think of technology or, or digital or however you frame it, um, we live in a time in which words are used, they're propagated, they're multiplied more certainly than in any time of history, not just because there's more of us, but because of all the venues in which we can move words along so we can talk to each other face to face. We can write letters, we can email, we can blog, you name it. We're spreading words more rapidly, uh, more quick fire than ever in the history of the world. And because of that, I think there's a temptation to underestimate the power of words. To underestimate the power of words. Words are certainly among the most powerful elements or things on the face of the planet because if we think about it, words communicate ideas. Uh, Words communicate beliefs. And the beliefs and the ideas that get communicated, they end up shaping our lives. They end up influencing who and what we believe, how we steer the course of our life. They're very, very powerful indeed. It was said of Superman back in the day, certainly true of words today, more powerful than a steaming locomotive and because of technology certainly faster than speeding bullets as well if you go back and think biblically early on it was by God's word the power of God's word created the heavens and the earth words have power God's word uniquely has power but it was God's word that created the heavens and the earth do you remember, uh, perhaps from childhood, the old saying, I don't know if this gets circulated today, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. I mean, can you think of another idiom that was uh, less true than that one? That if any one of us here paused for a moment, I'll bet we could come up with one after another after another. word, statements, something that someone said to us that hurt us deeply that may still reflect in our lives today. Things we may still think about or try and get over things that have been said to us that hurt. You know, we can inspire others by our words to reach toward or to look towards heaven. And with our words, again, thinking of James and the use of the words, we can condemn others to hell with our words. The words we take in and believe and act on will shape our world and our responses to God and God's call on our lives. So guys, this is the thing this morning. Words have power. Words are powerful. God knows that. He's addressed us through His Word uniquely so, but someone else knows that and knows that very, very well. Satan knows that words have power also. The enemy of our souls, God's opposition, if you will, on this earth, in this world, Satan knows that words have power also. And so if you go back to the temptation account in Genesis 3, Just think for a moment, in whatever way, haphazard way this comes across in our own mind, all the sin, all the death, all the murder, all the wars, all the rapes, all the whatever kind of sin, anger, bitterness, envy you can think of, goes back to a point in time sin didn't exist before this thing happened, right? Before the temptation. And the fall of all of humankind and all the sin that came started after a few words were shared with one person. The temptation account in English is about a dozen words. It's less than that in Hebrew. And Satan goes up to our first mother, Eve, and says, has God indeed said you shall not eat from any of the trees in this garden? Has God said? It's a question, right? But think of it for just a minute. Satan's smart, isn't he? He, He's highly cunning, and this is a phrase, a question laden with malice and cunning. So it's not just a question. It's not just some innocent, innocuous set of words, is it? It's laden on his end with temptation. So he's insinuating a few things. He's insinuating, how could God be so small-minded Eve, in keeping you from this simple pleasure? Why would He do that to you? He must not be good. He, He must not want what's in your best interest. Or, he'll say later, blatantly, God isn't telling you the truth. God's lying to you. You can't believe God, you can't believe His Word. And last, how stupid, Eve, you must be believe God's word about the fruit of this tree. Eve, how stupid are you to believe God and to take him at his word related to the fruit of this tree? The first temptation the enemy used incredulity and he implied ridicule successfully against our mother. And he's been using ridicule, mocking, and the threat of embarrassment in his temptations to thwart God's purposes in our lives ever since. Ridicule. Mocking. The threat of embarrassment. I believe you and I are supremely susceptible to defeat in the works of faith God calls us to merely, simply related to the Words that we will hear and may take in that will steal our hope, rob our joy, and lead us to believe God's promises may be true or may not be true, and if true, may be true for others, but not true for me. Think of this for just a minute. Esau had a birthright. And the Bible tells us very clearly he held it cheap because he sold his birthright for a bowl of stew, some red stuff. And friends, I'm convinced that we Christians today, we resemble Esau regularly because we sell our birthright cheap, which is to say, faced with no more than a little verbal intimidation, a temptation to be mocked or found wanting or embarrassed in front of others, Based on a little ridicule, we will sell our souls and the work God gives us to do because we're afraid of what other people think of us. And that's exactly what you saw Satan doing initially with Eve. And that we fall with Eve, we sell our birthright cheap, faced with a little ridicule, the threat of embarrassment. These things ought not to be. Many times, have you not found this true in your own life? All the enemy has to do is ding us with a little threat of embarrassment or zing us with some insinuation that others will find us wanting. Max Stiles is a guy worth knowing and reading. He's been an evangelist on college, university campuses across this country for a few decades. He also works primarily now in restricted restricted countries. He said this, He said most of the world fears the raised fist. So think of restricted countries he's working in. The raised fist, right, it represents the power of the police state or the army or political force raised up against us. Most of the world, he says, fears some kind of power that would be brought down upon the head of the Christian. But he says of Christians in the West, but we often fear the raised eyebrow. Have you seen this? You know, when you tell somebody something and they're like, the, the eyebrow goes up, right? Incredulity. You really believe that? Are you kidding me? You must be kidding. How stupid are you? How gullible are you? So around the world, the raised fist, Christians fear the raised fist, oppression of one form or another. But he says, no, we in the West, we fear the raised eyebrow. We fear that someone else, some mortal creature like ourselves, will find us wanting in one way or another, and they will communicate that by raising their eyebrow like you can't be so naive as to believe what you just said. Can you? It's pretty typical today for Christians to face ridicule of one sort or another, and often ridicule alone is adequate to shut us down from our God-given responsibilities. Ridicule alone. The enemy uses ridicule, the threat of embarrassment, so effectively that he often need resort to nothing else. Uh, You know, uh, bullets are cheap in a war. Bullets are cheap. They're sort of one of the cheapest weapons of warfare, but they'd still kill people and, and injure people, right? And for the enemy guys, words are easy and they're cheap. But you know what? They're really effective. And that's why he uses them. We started a new series in Nehemiah last week called Don't Quit, Lessons from Nehemiah. Let me just rehearse briefly, in case you missed that or forgot. This is a series, it's not verse by verse, it's topical. And the thought is, we want to be able to finish life well. In the grand scheme of things, this means we want to embrace the faith, we want to remain faithful through our last breath on this earth. Faithful to the end. But also along the way, we want to be faithful to discharge the unique responsibilities God calls each of us to. We said Nehemiah was called uniquely to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. Most of us are not literally building walls. But we have a faith we need to preserve and will also be called on by God to works of faith. You remember we talked about last week that the eternal omnipotent triune God from eternity past has commissioned you and I uniquely with works of faith he's called us to. And we also want to be found faithful in discharging those responsibilities as well. We don't want to quit early. Some of the works of faith you and I are called to, Steve mentioned this during announcements, are individual. So individually, you're going to have things you're called to do that no one else can do for you. As a a spouse, as a parent, as a friend, at work, there's a number of things only you can do. Other things we're going to find we're called to do, we're called to do corporately with the body, with our family, with the body of Christ. We've got to cooperate together with those. But in either case, you're going to find that we'll be tempted, just as Nehemiah was, to quit early, to cave, to give up, because we'll be faced with adversaries and opposition of one stripe or another. And Nehemiah is just a fine, fine guide to help us look through what does it look like to be tempted to quit the race early? How did he overcome and what lessons can we glean from that we're going to see in the text this morning the first opposition nehemiah faced was verbal ridicule guys it wasn't bullets it wasn't an army it wasn't an invasion the first opposition he faced was ridicule and just let me say on the front end uh, if you think you're not susceptible to ridicule i'll bet you're wrong if you say, if you think to yourself, he's only talking about verbal words used against me, that's not a problem for me. I'll bet you're wrong. So hold on to this. If you find you don't need it right now, that's okay. Store it up because I guarantee you will need it later. Last week, we talked about what kind of a person Nehemiah was. Friends, when we go into battle, we will be tested. And if we don't come in with, with Nehemiah's kind of foundation, his character, his core, we're going to find. Facing up to the difficulties that life and the enemy throws us is a challenge. So just remember, the, the guy that we're following through his process of not quitting early, this is what he was characterized by. First and foremost, his love for God and God's things. This motivated everything that followed. He loved God and he loved God's things. He was a humble man. You remember, he associated with the sins of that he hadn't personally committed, but he associated with the sins of the nation. He confessed them just as Daniel had before God as his own. We said he was a man of prayer and that he not only prayed regularly as a response to life, but when he prayed, he prayed God's word. His prayer was saturated with God's word and will. He had confidence from prayer because he knew what he was praying was God's will. Nehemiah was a diligent guy. You remember he did his homework before he needed it done. He was studying up on what do I need to be ready to say and ask for. And when I get to Jerusalem, I've got to search those walls for myself and see what the task ahead looks like. We said he was courageous. I don't think we can appreciate this, but you remember when he speaks to King Artaxerxes, he is in fact offering an insult to the most important man in the world and a man who could have him executed on a whim. And the text said he was very much afraid, but he spoke up anyway. Nehemiah was a man of courage we'll need that same quality he had respect for authority we pointed out everything nehemiah did he did under the aegis of the responsible parties god had instituted on the earth in those days he wasn't a rebel everything he did was done under authority and the last thing we didn't develop these there wasn't time last week he was inclusive it wasn't all about nehemiah you remember he got there and he starts speaking in plural pronouns he says guys we He's just arrived, but he says, we are in a pickle. We need to do something. We must rise and build. He was inclusive towards others. So, hope you've got a study sheet. If you don't, we're going to look in Nehemiah 2 and 4. We're going to skip through these passages because I want to focus just on this temptation. Starting in Nehemiah 2, uh, chapter 1, Nehemiah was in Susa and he's got permission. He's going to come through the Fertile Crescent, come right back to Jerusalem Nehemiah 2, verse 9 says, I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river, gave them the king's letters. The king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. So we've got two of Nehemiah's opponents named right here, Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah. The Ammonite, they're displeased, they're ticked, they don't like what they hear is coming. Skip down to verse 19 in chapter 2. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official, and now we get a third opponent, and Geshem the Arab, heard it, they mocked us and they despised us and said, What is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Now of course they know they're not rebelling. This is just they're poking at them verbally. They're just trying to get a rise and a response. They're just trying to put them off. So, verse 20, I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we are His servants will arise and build, but you have no portion right or memorial in Jerusalem. If you read through chapter 3, which we won't this morning... Nehemiah then goes on and he lists all the people and the trades and the families and the extended families. As he works around the wall, he tells us who rebuilds the wall and who rebuilds those gates. It's kind of a hall of fame. These were the families that were faithful to do what God had called them to in their day and time. It was to rebuild that wall. They're named for us. Getting to chapter 4, those first six verses, verse 1, now it came about when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall. He became furious and very angry and mocked the Jews. Now from verse 2 on, this says he spoke in the presence of his brothers. It's more than likely that this speech is like a stage speech that he's either inside or outside immediately the walls of Jerusalem. And while he's talking to his friends, his fellow adversaries, he is in fact speaking for the benefit of the Jews working on the walls around him. He spoke in the presence of His brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria, and He said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Are they building their own kingdom? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Is this even possible? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? Remember, they're sifting through the piles of stone rubble from the fire that consumed Jerusalem under King Nebuchadnezzar. A lot of the limestone would have been charred. It would have been weakened. It would have been useful. Verse 3, now Tobiah gets in on the act. Tobiah the Ammonite was near him and he said, even what they are building, if a fox should jump on it, he would break their stone wall down. It doesn't matter what they get put up. It's not going to last. It's not worth doing. Nehemiah responds at verse 4, Hear, O our God, how we are despised. Return their reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in a land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out before you. They have demoralized the builders. Uh, God basically do to them what they're trying to do to us because they've demoralized the builders and the builders are on God's mission. Lord, they're opposing You. You oppose them. And verse 6, So we built the wall and the whole wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. So, Nehemiah leaves Susa. He's got the king's letters. He's got the king's emissaries with him. He's a man under authority. He comes in. He wants to do God's things, God's way. He shows up, and he no sooner gets there than he finds there's opposition. He's a nice guy. I'll bet he's a lot like you and me. He's a nice person. And he hasn't tried to offend anyone. He hasn't tried to hurt anyone's feelings. He comes in to do God's will and he finds there are people there that are ticked at him. Do you guys ever find, I think this is a truism for Christians in the West, you're going about your business, you think you're doing God's will and some kind of opposition rises up and isn't our first thought generally, what did I do wrong? Lord, I thought I was doing your will, but there's opposition. Someone's opposing me. I must have done something wrong. Nehemiah does not come to that conclusion. And if you're about the works of faith God has called us to, if you're on mission for God, and you find that there's opposition out of nowhere, this should not be a surprise. Right? So Jesus says, if if this world, if it persecutes me, it will persecute my followers too. You know, the surprise to me is not that we get opposition that we have adversaries, it's that we appear to have so few, so infrequently. Now let me ask you, if we are in a spiritual battle on this earth, and we are, heaven against hell, God at work against Satan and his followers, if there's a spiritual battle pitched, and we say, I've never experienced battle, what might that say about our participation in the war? Life is easy, life is good, sunshine, green grass, blue skies, white clouds, green lights. Life is good. You know, many Christians in the church in the States are writing about this now. David Platt, probably best known for this, saying God's will for your life is not the American dream. Meaning, we are called to a spiritual battle. And life isn't about our comfort level. So Nehemiah comes in and all he's doing is he's coming in to do God's will. He faces opposition from the get-go. And guys, when we're about what God's called us to do and we see opposition, we shouldn't be surprised. Don't say, don't get rid of the question, what did I do wrong? I must have done something wrong. Maybe you're doing everything right. That's a possibility too. You're on mission for God and opposition arises because there's heaven against hell. Let me go briefly over Nehemiah's adversaries just to put them in context. Sanballat, uh, we know from the elephantine papyri from southern Egypt because he's mentioned there very specifically, we know he was the governor of Samaria. So he is the Persian-appointed governor of Samaria just north of Jerusalem. So he is Nehemiah's on the north there. It's also possible, we don't know this for sure, You know, so often there's, you know, a lot less than you'd like about some of the characters here, but we certainly have enough to go on. It's possible that he was also a Moabite when it keeps calling him Sambalat the Horonite. Well, there's a city in Moab that's close to that in name. Maybe he's a Moabite. And so Nehemiah is letting us know this guy is from a group that's been historically opposed to Israel, the Moabites just north and east, primarily east of Jerusalem. It's also possible that he came, frankly, from a city just north of Jerusalem also, Beth Horon. We don't know for sure. There's also Tobiah the Ammonite. Now, he's called an official or a servant. The word is fairly plastic. It could mean a number of things. It appears he's either serving under Sanballat or it's also possible that he's the governor of Ammon, that he's the servant of the Persian king in Ammon, directly east of Jerusalem. And then last we've got Geshem The Arab, and again from extra-biblical sources, we know that Geshem was a king in northern Arabia. And this part of the Persian Empire wasn't uh, overseen much. Geshem would have had pretty free reign in his corner of the world, even under the Persian rule. So, put this in your mind. Put Jerusalem, the map of uh, the Middle East in your mind. Jerusalem's here. You've got Sanballat's on the north and Tobiah looks like he's on the east, and Geshem is on the south. Now all you've got west is basically the hills, the coast, and the sea. So it looks like Jerusalem is surrounded by opposition, adversaries, and the enemy. Now, that's who is opposing him. So political powers, uh, people with ethnic histories that were in opposition to Israel historically... If we say, though, so he, these are the guys, why are they opposed to Nehemiah? What's their axe to grind? What is their gripe with Nehemiah coming back in and rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem? Now, on one hand, we could say things like the text doesn't say this specifically here, but we can insinuate some things like this. We could say, look, these are just carnal guys, they're self centered, selfish people like all of us are, based on our sinful disposition and they've got motivations like envy and greed, and they, they have a lust for power and significance, and, and just on this very carnal basis, they may be saying to themselves, this is our corner of the world. Who is this guy coming into our backyard? We didn't ask him. We don't want Jerusalem rebuilt. We're running this corner of the Persian w- world just well on our own. This is, things are as we like it. We're friends with each other. We've carved this area out. We don't want anyone else coming in. You know, this is our turf, this is our territory. In their minds, I suspect they had good reason to oppose Nehemiah. And probably in their own minds or their own conscious or unconscious motivations, we would say simply selfish or self-seeking motivations on their part to oppose Nehemiah and this rebuilding work. That'd be enough, right? If you said to them, you guys are actually instruments in the hand of the devil in opposing Nehemiah. I don't think this would have had any credibility with them. I think in their minds, it's just the normal kind of motivations that sinful humans have. We don't like what's going on. We're going to oppose it. There was, of course, the other side as well. There's the spiritual side, which we can't overlook here. Whatever their carnal rationale were, Whatever the reasoning in their own mind was. We know that this isn't just merely human opposition to what God was doing. This is spiritual opposition to what God wants to do. Jesus said in Matthew 12, verse 30, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. You know, in the big scheme of things on planet Earth today, there are two sides, there are two factions, there are two kingdoms, and we are all in one or the other. Right? So, we are in the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God, the kingdom ruled by Jesus, or we're not. We're in the other kingdom. We're in the kingdom of darkness, ruled by Satan. We're scattering with Jesus, or we're gathering with Him. There's no in-between. And Christians in the kingdom of light working on those things God has given us to do, we will face spiritual opposition from folks in the enemy's camp, whether they would say to themselves or not, what they're doing is spiritually motivated. If it's against Christ and Christ's cause, you can bet that there's spiritual motivation and energy behind that. If you think historically for just a minute, uh, the Jewish people, have been uniquely persecuted on this earth through history and around the world. And if you say, what's the deal with that? Uh, uh, Numerically, they're a small group. They've been significant historically, certainly. But if you say, why the pogroms in early Russia against the Jews? What's with that? Or if you get to World War II, and this is just recent, of course. Those are the ones all of us are familiar with, but this has gone on historically through the ages. Or if you say Hitler... And World War II and the Jews. What's with that? What explains that kind of animus towards this little numerically insignificant group who through most of the last 2,000 years has not even had a homeland? What's behind the animus towards the Jews? Or today, today, if you say, well, Israel's a nation and they took Palestinian land and I'm saying, I'm sorry, but if you, if you just read up on this, if you watch a few videos online, I tell you, absolutely, the land of Israel, the Middle East, doesn't come near close to being able to explain the blood lust that's characterized by not all, but by many Muslims, and especially Muslims in the Middle East. Human rationale, it does not answer this. Now or historically, and this is the thing, Satan is pursuing those people who are part of God's plan and God's program. I'm convinced God isn't done with the Jews yet. Whatever your eschatology, however you see the the future unfolding, the Jews are part of what God's going to do in the future. However you put those pieces together. I'm not arguing about how that looks in the future. Simply, that because the Jews have been part of God's purposes and plans and program, they've been opposed through the ages, by the enemy this is spiritually energized there's a spiritual animus behind that and guys for Christians those who represent Christ on the earth today there's a spiritual energy against Christians because we belong to Christ because we're part of God's program and his plans it's not merely human opposition it never is so the enemy he's conniving he's clever and he can give a spiritual form of energy to people who are opposing God and God's works. And sometimes it's through no more, highly effective, no more than verbal attacks against God and God's own. In the book of Daniel, and, and, and again, just having this in a bigger spiritual insight, uh, the later chapters of Daniel, God shows Daniel, Daniel... What you see occurring on the ground in history as one nation dispossesses another through time, that none of that's occurring sort of independent of the spiritual realm, but rather the nations that rise and fall are rising and falling because what's going on in the unseen spiritual realm. There are spirit, spiritual princes over these nations, demonic authorities with great power that are part and parcel of which nation is on the rise and which is caving. So there's spiritual opposition to God's people and God's plans. So when we face opposition, and we will, if we're part of what God's doing, we will face opposition, we need to be alert that there's probably some spiritual energy behind that. Now, sometimes you'll hear people say, maybe we are those people. Sometimes you'll hear people say that everything that happens in their life that, that uh, is not good, the devil did that. The devil did that, that, the pain, the burned bacon, whatever it is. You know, I'm thinking, I don't think you're that important. And the devil is not omnipresent. He's not omniscient, right? He has limited resources and he's smart, so he's strategic. So he's using his forces strategically. So the devil's not behind everything that goes wrong. Time and tide and just the way things work on sin-cursed planet Earth, that's enough for a lot of what goes on in our life, but certainly not all. And certainly not when we are part of what God's up to in the world, you can expect spiritual opposition. Uh, So, how about what the adversaries were doing? Guys, it's just verbal ridicule. He's going to face six things. Nehemiah will face six kinds of temptations to quit. But this first one is just verbal ridicule. This is easy for the enemy to throw against us. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 19, they mocked us and they despised us. And and chapter 4, they're furious and they they continue the joking and the jabs and the jibes. Spoken to the Jews. By the way, your study sheet shows 1 Kings 18 and 19. Uh, The enemy had used this before against the Jews at the same site. Isn't that interesting? That under good King Hezekiah, when the king of Assyria had come through, he destroyed all of Israel, all of Judah, Jerusalem is the last city standing. And Rob Shaka, the spokesman for the king of Assyria, comes and says, hey guy, no chance. And he mocks, in Hebrew, the people on the wall of Jerusalem. Hezekiah faces exactly the same temptation needed here. And the temptation to Hezekiah was to cave. And as we'll see in a minute, Hezekiah did exactly what Nehemiah did as well. But it's a verbal assault through mocking and ridicule. And then look at Nehemiah's response. So he responded to the ridiculers briefly. Then he responded to God, and then he got back with the work. So in chapter 1, verse 20, he said, I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven will give us success. Basically, he says, we're on a mission from God. And God will give us success. Therefore, we His servants, we're going to rise and build. We're going to do what God has called us to do and you have no portion right or memorial in Jerusalem. This was really short and to the point. We belong to God. God's called us to work. This is what we're going to do. And this is none of your business. So you mind your business and we'll mind ours. Short and to the point. He doesn't engage them in lengthy debate. Then the next thing he does is he prays to God. And Again, you see this in First 1 Kings 19.4 in Hezekiah's case. And I just point this out. You know... Um, we tend to do things that are effective again and again, right? So the enemy thought, I've done this before, it didn't quite work, maybe it'll work this time. In Hezekiah's day, Hezekiah, after this mocking treatment, he sent his servants to Isaiah the prophet and said, Isaiah, would you go and would you pray for us? And that's exactly what Nehemiah does too. He goes and he prays to God. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 4, Hear, O our God, how we are despised. Here, oh, our God, how are we despised? Lord, would you listen to what they're saying about your people? And then he, he prays basically what we would call an imprecatory prayer. He says, they, the enemy, have demoralized the builders. Lord, those who are on mission for you, they have been demoralized by these guys. Would you take care of them? He went to his commander-in-chief and said, Lord, we have a problem. Would you oversee this? Would you help us? And then the third thing he did was he got back to work. Verse six says, we built the wall. The whole wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. The third thing he did was he simply got back on the job. I find it interesting. And for Christians today, I think this is a temptation for us. The work is the thing. The work is the thing. What is it that God's called you to do? What is it that God's called us to do? You know, there's a temptation, and Nehemiah didn't fall for this here, there's a temptation to get in this confrontation with the opposition so that we convince them of the rightness of our position or work or call. There's this temptation to engage the enemy so that they see that we're really okay, that if they simply understood us better, they would say, yeah, you guys are okay, and we're with you. And Nehemiah doesn't give them the time of day. He doesn't engage them in any kind of lengthy debate. And I think that was strategically really shrewd and really wise. As we face political opposition, and we will, we are, ecclesiastical opposition, opposition from other Christians, you're going to see this. Christians, I'm using that term broadly, those who claim the name of Christ. You know, the polls came out. Seventy percent of Americans are Christians. Isn't that great? Not, right? Seventy percent are not Christ followers. Seventy percent may say, I am a nominal Christian. That does not mean they're Christians, that they have the Spirit, that they've accepted and believed the Gospel. So we're going to face ecclesiastical opposition. Social networking opposition. You, You know, the social network is a place that Christians get hammered to, and that's going to increase also. But in all of this opposition, we can't afford to get so caught up in confronting the opposition that we forget our mission. This is the thing. I think we're really susceptible to this, and it's based on a faulty premise that we can convince sinful humans that we're spiritually okay. That's a false premise. That we can convince those in the kingdom of darkness that the kingdom of light is okay. It's a false premise. And Christians today, I think, often waste our time and energy trying to debate the opposition to convince them we're right when it's never about that. It's about get back to the work and the mission you're called to. That's what Nehemiah did. That's what we're called to do. Don't get lost. Don't make apologetics the mission. Apologetics is not the mission. Sharing the Gospel is the mission. Worshiping the Triune God is mission. Growing in discipleship is mission. Mission. But convincing the opposition that we're right is not the mission. It never has been. It never will be. What is the work God's uniquely called us to? What are the works of faith God has called you to right now? Getting the opposition to get on board with you is not the mission. And Nehemiah wasn't tricked by this. He got back to the work. You know, if these guys, if the opposition here, if their hearts were in the right place, they could have become proselytes, couldn't they? They could have joined in the work in Jerusalem if they said Yahweh is our God like Ruth the Moabitess did, right? She was from a group that God said may never enter Israel. But she did. Why was that? Because she converted. Because she wasn't identified by her ethnic past as a Moabite anymore because she was a faithful follower of Yahweh. Getting the opposition to agree to our terms is never the goal. We just waste our time. There's a place for apologetics. Salt this, okay? However this looks like for you, I'm not sure. But make sure that we don't waste our time and energy doing something God hasn't called us to do. What is the work we're called to do? Nehemiah got back to the work, and so should we. Let's wind down. Slow down. I need to close here really quickly, but I I don't want to close without these questions. So, take a deep breath. Close your eyes. Pretend you're in first grade or kindergarten if you want. But uh, seriously, think about these questions. If you and I find ourselves susceptible to the temptation of ridicule and mocking, it's because we fear people instead of God. That's what all this comes down to. So ask yourself these questions. Just think through these with me for just a minute. Who defines us? Who defines who you are? Who defines who I am? Who defines my value? Who defines what the call in my life is to? Who do I take my cues in life from? Who do I allow to define my mission in life? Don't don't tell yourself the right answer. Okay? Jesus, Jesus. This is not a Sunday school class. Jesus is always the answer. Right? Don't say that if that's not true for you. Okay? Who? Now, and these help... Who do we fear and whose opinion do we value? See, this is getting closer to the point, isn't it? If you and I can be mocked or ridiculed into silence when God has commissioned us to speak, friends, it means that people are God and God is not. It means that we have fallen for the temptation to fear man more than God. Who do we believe and who do we look to for approval? Uh, You can open your eyes now. I don't know if this happened to you, probably for most of us in here in one form or another, this has happened. Someone in childhood or or kids for you guys today, peers, maybe this happens to you today. So someone says to you, I dare you to do this. I dare you to do this. What are they doing? They're saying, I'm God and you're my underling. And if you'll jump through the hoops I assign you, I might say that you have status in my sight. Isn't that nice of them? You see, they're taking on the role of God and they're saying, you're my servant. I dare you. Or if they say, you're a chicken. You're just afraid to. What are they saying? They're saying more of the same. They say, you don't have value in my eyes. Don't you want to have standing and value in my eyes? And if you'll jump through my hoops my way, then I'll say, you're okay. You're approved. You see, all this is based on idolatry. If we find ourselves susceptible to mocking and ridicule, it means we fear men more than God. Is that really what we want to do? Do we want to ultimately take our cues from sinful people like ourselves? You know, I might think one day you're okay, and the next day I might think, no way. And you might think the same about me. Well, how fickle we are. Is that who and what we want directing and approving our life? You can never win with this, guys. You can never win. Ever. So if we find that this is what's motivating us, we've got to repent of the sin of idolatry. Because we fear people more than we fear God. And this is the great thing. If we give God His due, if we fear God and revere Him as we should, we can face the temptation in ridicule and mocking just like Nehemiah did. It doesn't have to faze us in the least. We can say, I'm on a mission for God. And you're not God. And I'm going to get back to the work. But guys, ridicule and mocking the raised eyebrow. Christians, we tremble at this. We cave to it all the time. And it's because of the sin of idolatry, because we fear and we crave the approval of men instead of fearing and craving the approval of God. So we need to repent of that. We need to follow Nehemiah. We don't fear the opposition. We don't take our cues from the verbal assaults of the opposition. We get back to the work. Let's pray. Lord, would you help us to see you adequately and to fear and revere you as we ought. Lord, would you you help us present to you hearts of wisdom that we know a little bit at least of who you are and what you're like. God, out of that, would you help us to fear you supremely? Lord, would you help us to have your love for those around us, but would you help us to, to conquer the fear, the temptation to sin that is the fear of man that allows our lives to be controlled and constrained by the fear of others, by their acceptance or rejection? Or would you help us to love you fully, to fear you appropriately, and Lord, to be about the business and the works of faith you've called us to. Help us to glorify Christ in all of that. In his name, amen.